Luke 22, 39 through 53. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus and him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with a sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders, who had come out against, uh, against him, have you come out against, as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. This is the word of the Lord, and let's pray. Our Father in heaven, now as we seek to hear your voice speak to us once again and meditate on what you say, we ask for your help that your spirit would come and so work in our hearts and our minds, Lord, that we would get a great sense of the weight, of the burden of sin that Jesus carried and his suffering for us in taking that sin upon himself and then enduring the wrath of God for us and for our salvation. Oh Lord, may we rejoice and may we as your people, come to have courage in this world to speak his name and declare his words. More and more, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, there's nothing more personal or revealing about a person and what that person cares about than hearing what they pray about in their private times with God. Uh, you've probably prayed with other believers at various times. You've, you've heard what other believers uh, here in this church have prayed about during Bible studies or prayer meetings or Sunday school classes or, or small groups. At least I, I, I hope you have. Uh, and you learn a lot about what others care about during those times of prayer. But if you were able to overhear what your brother or sister in Christ prayed during their daily quiet time with the Lord, then it would almost be like you were provided 
a peek into their very hearts to see what they cared about the most, to see what was really there. And here in this passage, we have come to, in, in Luke's gospel, we are provided with the most intimate access to Jesus that anyone could ever be privileged to have. This indeed is holy ground as we are given access to Jesus in overhearing his conversation with God the Father on the night before he died on the cross. Here we get to see what Jesus cared about most. We are invited in to see and hear the very heart of our Lord. And Luke shines the light on Jesus in these two paragraphs that that I just read. He is the focus of these two scenes that take place in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, We are shown Jesus' pastoral concern for his disciples. We are given the amazing privilege of witnessing the intense crisis that Jesus goes through in his praying, and we're also shown the sovereign control that Jesus as Lord had over the disturbing events that were taking place on that night. Through it all, we see what was the highest priority on the heart of Jesus on the night before his crucifixion. So that's our main theme. The highest priority of the Son of God was to do the will of his Father even if it cost him everything. Now just prior to where our passage begins, the disciples and Jesus had celebrated the Passover meal uh, in the upper room. There Jesus both introduced the new covenant, the new covenant meal uh, for his followers, consisting of the bread and, and the cup, and announced that one of the 12 disciples would betray him. The disciples were quite shocked by that revelation, but it didn't keep them from getting back to their debate, one that they probably had before, their debate with with one another about which of them should be considered as the greatest in the kingdom. Jesus then tried to turn their attention away from themselves in order to prepare them for the trials and temptations that they were about to experience. The disciples, however, just revealed how unprepared they were for those trials as they were mainly trusting in themselves. And to humble them, Jesus announced that Peter, their leader, their spokesman, would deny that he knew Jesus that very night and that he'd do that three separate times. And so as we come to verse 39 now, they have departed the upper room They return to where they have been spending their nights while they've been in Jerusalem for the Passover feast and on the Mount of Olives, just east of the Temple Mount, in a garden called Gethsemane. This was their custom, so Judas knows that Jesus will be there with just the other 11 disciples. So let's first look at Jesus' pastoral concern here that's found uh, in verses 40 and then 45 and 46. Uh, If you're looking at your outline provided for you in in, in the bulletin, I think I neglected to put the verses on there. So the first is uh, verses 40, 45 through 46, Jesus' pastoral concern. One of the main themes of this paragraph is uh, most definitely prayer. We we see prayer 
mentioned several times, Jesus encourages the disciples to pray. And of course, Luke reveals the content of Jesus' prayer. Uh, We'll look at that next. But right now, let's notice how concerned Jesus was for his disciples. He is almost like a concerned parent here, counseling his children. He knows what is about to come for them. He already told them back in verse 31 that Satan is after them to sift them like wheat. Satan wants to destroy their faith, destroy their fellowship, wants to tear them away from Jesus, and thus away from salvation and eternal life. And of course, these will be the very men who will be the foundation of the church. They will take the lead in evangelizing the gospel, uh, uh, sharing the gospel and evangelizing the world. They will be the fathers of the church. They, They didn't realize how central their roles would be to the plan of God for the spread of the gospel. And so here is Pastor Jesus Pastor Jesus commanding them, exhorting them, exhorting his his congregation, telling them to pray. Look at verse 40. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And then after uh, Jesus had, had prayed himself, verse 45, when he arose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise. And pray that you may not enter into temptation. So let's think together about this. First, let's notice what our Lord is concerned about here just hours before he will be arrested and crucified. Jesus was concerned for his disciples. He was concerned about them. He was was very concerned for them that their faith would not be torn apart. He did not want to lose any of them. Several years ago, uh, about 15 years ago, uh, my friend Al from my former church um, received very sad news uh, that he didn't have uh, long to live, was told to go home and, and, and uh, set your house in order. And, and uh, what I noticed that was what was primary on his heart during that time what he prayed for was, was those he loved. He prayed for those he loved, his, his wife, his sons, their families, his neighbors, his fellow brothers and sisters in his church. They were the ones who were closest to him. He cared for them in those hours, in those days. He was thinking about them. And, and we see Jesus do much the same here. He's thinking about his disciples. He wants to help them. He wanted to be uh, their protector. He wanted to be their helper. He was serving here as a pastor, encouraging them to pray. He wanted them to know God and to have faith and hope in God. And so he exhorts them to pray. Their faith is about to be tested. Therefore, Jesus calls them to exercise their faith. You do that, you build up your faith through prayer. Second thing we need to notice is that Jesus exhorts the disciples to pray, or what, the, what he exhorts his disciples to pray about. What request they are to ask of God 
at this crucial time. It's not for good health and safety. It's not that they would have success in their future endeavors. It's not that they would be considered to be the greatest in the kingdom that they were hoping for a few minutes ago. What the Lord Jesus calls the disciples to pray for is that they may not enter into temptation. We see that exact phrase mentioned twice here by Jesus in verse 40 and then again in verse 46. Jesus knew that his disciples greatest need at that time was to be protected from temptation. He also knew their spiritual condition was such that this was a danger for them, that this temptation would be a danger for them. And he was convinced that the best way for them to be helped, to be protected, to overcome that temptation was for them to pray, to not look at themselves, to not rely upon their own strength, or the resources that they had within themselves, but to look outside of themselves, to call out to God for strength, to call out to God for faith, to cry out to God for spiritual protection. At this crucial time, Jesus calls them to pray that they may not enter into temptation. So brothers and sisters, I think each of us needs to do a little spiritual self-examination here and ask first, are we praying? Is prayer important for us? Do we consider it a priority? Are we coming to God regularly and seeking Him and relying on the spiritual help that only He can provide us? Or are we just thinking we're, we're doing just fine on our own? We got this. We can handle it. We don't really need his help. Are you relying on your own strength to get through each day, to face the temptations that you face each day? Or are we following our Lord's instructions here and praying? I think that may be the first application for us, to be challenged to simply renew our commitment to pray, to make prayer a daily discipline or just a regular practice throughout our day. Whenever we sense our need for help, we should probably be, 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 be much more often than we think it is. We should go to God in prayer. The second thing is when we pray, what are we praying for? Do we understand where we live? Do we recognize just what the spiritual condition is here surrounding us in our society? If you want to get a sense of the spiritual condition of our society, we'll just take a look. Take a look at the stories that our society is telling. It is overwhelming how huge entertainment is in our society. Television, cable uh, TV, uh, and the internet streaming services that are multiplying each week, show us that we are people who want to be entertained and we want to be entertained by stories. And there's no question that that the stories that, that, that are being told in those shows and movies are stories where immorality is normal, if not glorified and celebrated, and God is completely absent. 
If there is a religious or a Christian character on any of those shows, that character is either obviously an idiot who is mocked and despised or, or someone who, who, who turns out to be evil and more socially deranged than any other character on the show. So, so what effect might those shows have on us if we spend hours and hours watching them? What effect might it have on our young people who are spending hours and hours watching them? If we aren't concerned about how the world that we live in is set up to lead us away from belief in God, to lead us away from any, any hope in the gospel, any need for, for spiritual transformation, well, then we are in some serious, serious danger. And the Lord here commands us what we must do to prevent our being led astray. Pray that you may not enter temptation. So is that how you are praying? Is that how you are praying for yourself, for your children, for your fellow church members? The last thing that we are noticed is just how unconcerned the disciples were about their need to pray. Again, back, back at verse 45, when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Now, you might argue, I mean, their sleeping here is very understandable. Luke even tells us they were sleeping for sorrow. I mean, Jesus had, had just been warning them about some pretty heavy things. They were aware that, that he would soon leave them. Plus, they, they, they'd had a long day. You know, we can understand that. We can understand falling asleep. Maybe they began to pray and, and just drifted off to sleep like many of us I'm sure have, have done as well. That happens all the time. Well, it, it may be understandable from, from our perspective. But it wasn't from Jesus' perspective. It's understandable to us because we really aren't, aren't that concerned about temptation. We aren't that concerned about, about our sin. We aren't that concerned about spiritual dangers we don't take sin, temptation, or Satan all that seriously, and therefore, we don't pray. We certainly don't pray about not entering into temptation. But remember how Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Back in, in Luke 11, 2 through 4, we know that as, as the, the Lord's prayer, and, and in that prayer, the Lord instructs his disciples to pray, lead us not into temptation. And then in, in Matthew's version of the Lord's Prayer, it also includes, and deliver us from evil, or more likely, deliver us from the evil one. So brothers and sisters, our, for our spiritual survival, we must not neglect to pray in the ways that Jesus instructed us to pray. Next, we're going to take a look at Jesus' intense crisis here. This is in verses 41 through 44, Jesus' intense crisis. Let's read those verses. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. 
And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. The first thing that we are to notice here that we, is that we need to have settled in our minds is the dual nature of the Son of God. Jesus Christ is truly God, and he is truly man. He has a divine nature, and he has a human nature, and we see here, here is Jesus' human nature suffering under the weight of the will of God for him. Jesus, through his, his human nature, is praying for God to remove this cup from him, but in the end, he submits to God's will for him and puts himself under God's plan of redemption for his people. Now Jesus really seems to be in misery here. Luke de- describes him as being in agony, praying even more earnestly, he says. He says he was sweating. And Luke says he was, his sweat became like great drops of blood down to the ground. Now there is a medical condition called hematidrosis, which is a rare condition in which a person sweats blood when under extreme stress and anguish because it causes one's capillary blood vessels to dilate and burst, mixing blood with sweat. Now that may have been what, 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 what was happening here. It would surely show the immense agony and stress that Christ was going through and how it affected him not only spiritually and emotionally but also physically. But all the text says is that his sweat became like great drops of blood, like Jesus was sweating so profusely because of his anguish and agony that, that was just running off of him onto the ground like, like blood would come off of him. The question that we are faced with here is, is why? Why? What was the cause of all this agony for Jesus? If we look closely at the, at the text of Scripture, what we find is that the cause of his agony was the dreaded anticipation that Jesus had for this cup. This cup that he was asking God to remove from him. It's pretty clear that Jesus is speaking metaphorically about this cup, you know, whatever the cup represented. It was something that Jesus, in his human nature, would have preferred to not have to suffer, to not have to drink from, unless, of course, it was the will of God for him. Luke doesn't, doesn't tell us what the cup represents. He assumes that we would already be familiar with this language, with this image of the cup from the Old Testament scriptures, where it is mentioned in the Psalms as well as several places in, in the prophets. Either that or he assumes that, well, we just look back in our Bibles to find out the so, uh, significance of the cup in the Old Testament scriptures there. So we're going to do that. Um, and in those scriptures, the cup is mentioned a little over a dozen times in the Old Testament. And each time it is, re- is referring to the cup of the Lord's wrath. One clear example of this is in Isaiah 51. Isaiah 51, verse 17. There in that passage, the prophet Isaiah is proclaiming the word of the Lord to the people of Jerusalem, and he proclaims to them, you have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. 
to the dregs, the bowl, the cup of staggering. Then later in verse 20, Isaiah says, Your sons have fainted. They lie at the head of every street like an antelope in a net. They are full of the wrath of the Lord, the rebuke of your God. So the cup that Jesus dreaded having to drink was the cup of God's wrath, his wrath against sin. It was the taking on of all of our wicked sinfulness against God's perfect holiness, which would result in God having to pour out his wrath against sin upon his Son. The Apostle Paul explains what what Christ was about to endure by saying this. He says, For our sake, he, referring to God the Father, he made him, referring to, to Jesus' Son, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He made Christ, the one who knew no sin, he made him to be sin. To be sin. So he could pour out his wrath on him as sin instead of on us. So that we might become the righteousness of God. And then in in Galatians The Apostle Paul also writes, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So it was this heavy burden of the sin and guilt of his people pressing down upon Christ that led to him in such a terrible, to be in such a terrible condition here in our passage. Our sin brought on such terrible agony on Christ in the garden. It was this anticipation of being forsaken by God the Father, for he could not be in the presence of such sin and wickedness, so he had to pour out the cup of his wrath upon his own son. And so this broken fellowship with God, the Father, because of taking on our sin and guilt upon himself, that's, that's what was led, that's what led Christ to this agony to this intense stress, even to the point of sweating great drops of blood as he prayed, asking God if there was another way. Yet, we see his highest priority. His highest priority was fulfilling the will of God as Father. He was willing to endure it if it was the will of his Father. May we learn from our, our Lord's example here. Often we know what the Lord's will is for us, don't we? But we'd rather not do it. We'd rather, we'd rather not go through it because it is so difficult for us to do. Maybe it's forgiving someone who's wronged us. Maybe it's having that, that conversation with someone who needs to hear the truth. Or maybe it's just, you know, you need to break off a relationship with someone that you know is not good for you, someone you know is not a believer, is not a Christian, someone who doesn't share your commitment to the Lord, so you know you have to do this. It is the Lord's will. These are very difficult things, and it can seem to us like a crisis, a crisis for us either to submit ourselves to the Lord's will, 
which will be hard, or, or try to ignore the Lord's word, which will also be hard. Either way, it will be very difficult. But as Christ knew, God's will may be a path filled with suffering, but in the end, it will have a wonderfully good purpose, like the salvation of all those who put their faith in Christ. Lastly, we see in verses 47 through 53, Jesus' sovereign control. Jesus' sovereign control. Now, a lot is going on in this little paragraph, and it all seems to be going wrong. All the wrong stuff is going on here for Jesus and his disciples. First, we have Judas, whom Luke reminds us again, was one of the 12 disciples. He interrupts Jesus speaking to the other disciples in order to identify Jesus as the one uh, the high priest and the other officers wanted to arrest. And he does this with a kiss. But he could have just pointed to him. He could have just stood behind one of the officers and whispered in his ear that, that, yep, that's him. Jesus is the one doing all the talking here. That's him. But no, instead, Judas approaches Jesus like he is still a close friend of his and greets him with a slight kiss on the cheek, as was common in that culture. And then we have the disciples who are standing close to Jesus. They get an understanding of what's going on here, and one of them attacks an officer with a sword, and he wasn't just trying to you know, scare the guy away. He was trying to kill him, swing, swinging at his head, but ending up just chopping off his ear. And then to, to finish it off, we, we get this shocking scene of some of the leading religious leaders of the Jews, the chief priests, the elders, and officers of the temple out there in this garden in the middle of the night, sneaking up on Jesus with soldiers, with swords and clubs. It definitely seems here to be a bit chaotic and, and just plain wrong. And yet even in this chaos... It seems like Jesus is the one who's in control. He confronts Judas' Judas's treachery in verse 48. He puts a quick end to the violence of the sword-wielding disciples in verse 51. He then immediately corrects the damage done with an amazing healing miracle, reattaching the servant's ear, and finally... In the last three verses of our passage, Jesus exposes these leaders for who they really are. They had every opportunity to arrest Jesus in the days leading up to this. Jesus was right there in the temple courts every day teaching. If he really was a dangerous criminal that needed to be stopped, that needed to be executed, they could have taken him into custody at any of those times, but instead... They hired one of his disciples to give him up at a time and a place where they wouldn't be seen by most of the public. They'd come out here in the middle of the night in the darkness and they were acting like Jesus was some revolutionary by how much they had armed them themselves in order to arrest him. They were cowards. And Jesus exposes them as such and then reveals whose side they were really on, in verse 53, 
But this is your hour, he says, and the power of darkness. So the time had come. The hour had arrived. And it was a time that was predetermined. Not by these enemies of the Lord here, nor by Satan, the personal power behind the darkness, but it was an hour determined in eternity past in the divine council of heaven between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This was now the hour. Your hour, Jesus says. The hour of the power of darkness. But their time was limited. Listen to what J.C. Ryle says about this. I think he understood this passage exactly as we are to understand it. He said, The time during which evil is permitted to triumph is fixed and limited by God. The hands of the wicked are bound until he allows them to work. They can do nothing without his permission. But that is not all. The hands of the wicked cannot stir one moment before God allows them to begin and cannot stir one moment after God commands them to stop. Our Lord's enemies could not take and slay him until the appointed hour of his weakness had arrived. Nor yet could they prevent his rising again when the hour came in which he was declared the Son of God with power by his resurrection from the dead. So this was not a surprise to Jesus. He knew the hour had come. He knew it was the time for him to, like Job before him, be given over to the power of darkness for the good purposes of God and the salvation of his people. And so may we always know, may we always know when it seems like evil has the upper hand, when darkness seems to be reigning, when it seems like the chaos of the Garden of Gethsemane is spilling over into our lives, it will only be for a limited time. We may have to go through our hour of darkness, and it may seem like a very long hour, but we must believe, we must trust that, that it will not last one minute longer than what God has intended for it to fully accomplish his good purpose for us. We are not helpless victims to the evil desires of the evil one. But if we are in Christ by faith, then our lives are under the sovereign control of the one who has willingly gone under the power of darkness to be condemned as the worst of all sinners in order to suffer the full wrath of God against sin out of his great love for us and his passion for the glory of his Father because Christ was forsaken for us as he took on our sin. Therefore, the final verse of one of the greatest hymns that has ever been, been written will always be true for us. The soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no never, no never forsake.